Welcome to the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast, a podcast covering your favorite crew featuring Peter and David Goh. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 10 of the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast. Thanks for tuning in today. We got some new brewers uh, news and scores to follow up on. Last episode, David covered through game one of the Brewers' two and two series against the White Sox. So today we'll be covering games two through four, as well as their series against the Reds. And uh, I know this, is, this happened last time we recorded a podcast, but something about Sunday nights uh, here in the Milwaukee area raining again. So we apologize if there's any uh, rain or noise behind us, but shouldn't be too bad for you. Just wanted to throw that out there. But anyways, game one of the series against the White Sox. Uh, White Sox taking this one from the Brewers 6-4, to four, like I mentioned. Uh, David talked about that in our last episode. Uh, any other thoughts that you want to add or pretty much covered it in the last one? Yeah, I mean, pretty much covered it in the last one. Uh, if, make sure that if you didn't check out that podcast, there were some takeaways I had from that game. I actually recorded it right after the game ended, so it was fresh in my mind too. Yeah, definitely covered that one as well as uh, some big Brewers news, Lorenzo Cain being the big one. Um, so yeah, definitely check out episode 9. Uh, give those a listen, uh, some good content there. And so White Sox, again, taking game one from the Brewers 6-4. to four. Uh, Game two was a matchup of the Aces, Lucas Giolito facing off against Brandon Woodruff. And the White Sox, again, taking this one 3-2. to two. Ben Gamble did uh, score the Brewers, uh, was responsible for the Brewers, two runs on a two-run homer off Giolito in the bottom of the fifth. Yeah, the Brewers' offense was not particularly strong on Tuesday. They... They really struggled. They only put together seven hits over the course of the whole game. Giolito is one of the better pitchers in the American League, so it doesn't necessarily come as a huge surprise. But it, it would be nice to see the Brewers' bats kind of wake up. We did see them, them have a stronger showing against the Reds offensively yesterday, which we'll get to. But the Brewers' offense overall was a little bit quiet, especially during that White Sox series. Yeah, and going one for seven specifically in that game with runners in scoring position obviously doesn't help as well. Like I mentioned, Woodruff and Giolito facing off. Both pitchers going six innings, giving up two earned runs. Solid starts from both pitchers. The Brewers turned to Devin Williams in the seventh, who gave up an unearned run and took the loss from the game, and followed up Williams with Brent Suter pitching the remaining two innings. Game three of the series moved over to the Windy City, where the Brewers took an exciting game, 1-0, where Adrian Hauser pitched a gem, going seven innings and giving up five hits and no runs. Dallas Keuchel pitched for the White Sox, also going seven innings and giving up just one run, but a very good matchup that we saw. What are some takeaways that you took from this game? Yeah, Hauser looked excellent really throughout the seven innings that he pitched. Phelps and Hayter did knock down the, did close up the game there, sealing it. Phelps allowed a couple of deep fly balls in the eighth. I know I was very nervous actually seeing those fly balls, but ultimately they were able to close the door which is the main thing offense did not come alive this game really either Hira, Pena, Matthias, Arcia, and Sogard each had a hit and Mark Matthias this was his first major league hit coming in his first start he made his debut on Tuesday the night before and then he actually has been in the lineup quite a bit yeah do you see Matthias picking up more playing time now that Lorenzo Cain is out it's certainly possible it's not something that I would have necessarily envisioned going into this this stretch where Matthias was called up but Matthias has showed pretty well with the Brewers so far this past week, and he's been getting some starts in the outfield. He can play in the outfield, not great. 
he did make a catch look a little bit difficult. That should have been a relatively easy play. May and, I say uh, Eric Thames-esque? Yeah, yeah, maybe a more athletic Eric Thames. Kind of a, a, a utility infielder really playing the outfield. He's never played outfield in uh, in any level of professional ball until this year. But he did look... I mean, like at least he he knew what he was doing. You're not like holding your breath every time he gets a fly ball. So he could get some of the starts. Garcia actually sat out a couple games because of a, a hit by pitch, a minor injury, and so Matthias was able to get some of the starts there as well. Yeah, Garcia and Matthias and other depth moves that the Brewers made over the off season, proving their worth already just in this young season after losing Lorenzo Cain and Ryan Braun having some injury concerns as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. For me, I was a little bit, a little bit concerned that they would spend twenty million dollars for two years on Avisael Garcia, especially with the other outfielders they had. But it looks like that's really paying off. At least to this point, it has. Absolutely. And and like you mentioned, Hader coming in, closing the door in the ninth, uh, his third appearance and second save on the season. Um, and H- Hader hasn't been used a ton, but like I mentioned, looked good, shut the door in the ninth, and the Brewers able to take game three one nothing and like we mentioned adrian hauser going seven innings and not giving up any runs to the white Sox. this following up a solid first start he now has 12 innings with just one earned run and six hits uh definitely continuing a success that we saw from 2019 and uh, what are your thoughts on hauser going forward for this year yeah i certainly have had high hopes for him over the the off season leading up to this this season this abbreviated 60 game shortened schedule that we have and i definitely think that he is is a, a bona fide reliable major league starter and that's something that he's really proving in his first couple starts he had that one home run that he allowed to colin moran in his first start and since then he hasn't allowed a single run and so hauser has looked excellent he looks like a guy who could be the number two behind woodruff for a number of years he's still under team control for a while and so that is a big thing that that Hauser could do. And one thing that I was noticing is that he has been locating the ball better. I was looking at some of his heat maps. And if you want a little bit more information on this, be sure to check out my article that I wrote on bleedingblueandyellow.wordpress.com, our website. I did mention Hauser as a guy who's looked a little bit improved. But Hauser has been locating the four-seam fastball up in the zone where it's most effective and locating the sinker down and to the arm side of the strike zone and so those are two areas where he's really thrived and he was not necessarily able to do that as consistently last year and so we may see a step forward from Hauser for that. Yeah I'll be honest with Hauser I don't know if it was just me or I don't know if I was just impatient with him but I think because of all the years at least it should felt like a long time of him being up and down triple a major leagues getting small appearances here or there I really wasn't expecting too much from him as far as his Brewers career with the little that we saw with his most noteworthy performance prior to this year probably being throwing up in the middle of the game (laughs) yeah yeah that's the thing that people forget about hauser is he debuted in 2015 actually coming the year that he was acquired in the carlos gomez trade but 2015 he makes his debut tears his ucl the following spring and essentially has to sit out all of 16 and 17 and then 18 he finally is back in triple a has an okay year such that he did make just that one appearance actually in 2018 where he threw up behind the mound at miller park on 
I believe it was June 17th. I, th- I was at the game. Definitely sounds about Yeah, right. Brewers bullpen car giveaway. Uh, <laughs> it was a really long game against the Phillies. It was, I think it was nine innings, but the final score was like 11-10 or something like that. And whoever the last batter was flew out to Odubel Herrera at the warning track. Uh, that was right after Reese Hoskins really badly misplayed a ball in left field. So it was, it was a, a bullpen game. And yeah, you definitely you don't really remember much of the game because the, the Phillies beat the Brewers 10-9. 10-9. So not even close to what you were saying. But, uh, yes, Hauser did appear in that game. Eric Thames, Christian Yelich, the uh, 2018 Brewers lineup, even uh, Jesus Aguilar. Playing third base. <laughs> <laughs> he came in and played third base at the end of the game. But, yes, good, uh, good memories from the Brewers. Hauser did come in, uh, pitch one inning. No, nothing on the box score there about him throwing up. I don't know where that would be, but it was definitely an interesting moment. I don't know that I've seen that before. Yeah, like even really yeah, even other other like writers and people yeah. were saying that that they've never seen something like that. So would you would would you compare this to the flu game? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Michael Jordan flu game. Yeah, yeah, I would say probably Jordan. He's a close second. Yeah, close yeah. second. I, I'd have to go. Tiebreaker goes to Jordan. <laughs> Anyways, uh, but anyways, yeah, Hauser, 2015, I mean, the Brewers have come a long way since 2015. We could just look at the 2015 Brewers roster, and just remembering back to that time, uh, it just feels like Hauser's been in here for a long time and was really ineffective and, and didn't make an impact until last year. Yeah, kind of a, a 4A depth arm that the Brewers had there. In the final game of the series, the Brewers' bats came alive scoring eight runs on 13 hits when the White Sox sent out former Brewers pitcher Gio Gonzalez. He did not go his typical five innings, two runs, unfortunately. No. That must be a Brewer thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was the main thing that I was... Uh, I was or not hoping for, but I mean, it must be a council Brewers thing. If he's if he pitches with council, Gio always won either five or six innings and two or three runs. That was like a given. Yeah, that's what it seemed like. But also, I was, I, I was curious. So I was reading about Gio Gonzalez a, a few weeks ago. And they were saying that he was throwing, I think it was more balls, like intentionally, basically. And he was more effective throwing more balls and walking more hitters because his stuff is not great. So when he would fall behind in the count, it was almost like he would purposely like nibble. Whereas you're not going to have a guy like Woodruff do that. And so I wonder if the White Sox will try to have that continue with Geo. So he wasn't getting hit as hard with the Brewers, but he was walking a few more batters. But ultimately, he was able to be more effective with the Brewers than he was with the Nationals when he came over. Yeah, he was solid for the Brewers. I know, yeah. obviously, we joke going five or six innings, yeah. two runs every time. Of course, yeah. that wasn't what it was, and it really wasn't even as common as we feel yeah. like it was. But yeah. he was really quite solid for the, I think, for the acquisition. Most fans were not expecting too much from him. And I would say he played a pretty big role. Um, as far as based on expectations, he played a big role for the Brewers. Yeah, watching Brett Anderson makes me miss Gio Gonzalez. Yeah, that's probably a pretty pretty comparable guy, another lefty arm. But anyway, game four, Brewers taking this one 8-3, splitting the series uh, with the White Sox. Bats, like I said, bats came alive, 13 hits. Um, good to see a couple of hits from Hira, Jerko going two for three, Narvaez, two hits, and Matthias getting another Spot in the lineup this time in right field going two for five. But Brewers offense finally coming alive and good to t- at least split the series with the White Sox. Yeah, and I think one thing to mention about the pitching is Freddie Peralta came in out of the bullpen and threw three innings. And so, of course, we don't know exactly what Council will choose to do with Peralta going forward. But I think that this is a role that Peralta would be most successful in, a guy who maybe comes in in the fifth, sixth inning and kind of gets it to the end of, back end of the bullpen. 
Yeah, I know you've been talking about that really since we started this podcast that you really like Peralta and you see Peralta long-term in that swingman stretch role that we've seen the Brewers use Hayter, use Burns in that role, and even really Suter was in that role late last year. And his stuff definitely uh, lends him to doing that. And like you said, three innings, giving up just one hit, no runs in six Ks. Uh, Peralta looked good in that one, and Eric Yardley also closing out the game for the Brewers getting one inning there uh, to finish the game up. Yeah, Yardley is uh, probably my favorite reliever on the Brewers still, and he actually hasn't allowed an earned run yet. So. True, right, you're right, an so, earned run, that's right. So. Yeah, so yay Eric Yardley, Brewers relief ace 2020, he's my guy. I just love sidearmers and submarine pitchers, I feel like they're always overlooked, but yeah, anyway. So. That's a very Moneyball-esque of you. Yeah, kind overlooked. of. Yeah. No uh, Jeremy Giambi or David no, Justice on the Brewers. No, no. No. Chad Bradford, maybe. That's Make true. a comeback. I mean, he hasn't pitched in 12 years, but he was only throwing like 82 at the time. Yeah. So if he can throw like 79, maybe he can still get out. Uh, uh, Claudio's, what was yeah. it, 59? Was it that one time that he threw? Yeah, that? something yeah. like that. Yeah. At least it's about 62, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> that's what it feels like. <laughs> well, changeup average is 72, I think. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure like... Going from, did the, was it the Brewers that went from, I mean, obviously, but did the Brewers go from Woodruff to, to Suter? That's who it was. Yeah. Um, which isn't quite the same, yeah. but or still. Or Anderson to Burns. Yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah. Because as a hitter, I know you mm-hmm. know this, obviously, when you see somebody, uh, either a hard thrower or a soft tosser, either way you flip mm-hmm. it, it definitely messes with you. And, and that 72-mile-an-hour changeup sure feels like a 59-mile-an-hour yeah. changeup coming out of Claudio's hand or Suter's fastball, whatever, any of those things. Um, just some of the value that Council adds as a manager. The Brewers returned home for a three-game set against the Cincinnati Reds. In Game 1, we saw a matchup of Trevor Bauer and Eric Lauer. Lauer making his Brewers starting rotation debut. Um, a little bit disappointing, or maybe a lot of bit disappointing, going just three, three innings, giving up six earned runs. On the other hand, Bauer pitching well, going six innings and limiting the Brewers to just three hits and one run. Yeah, Bauer looked really good. I know people have been saying that he is a, an early candidate for the Cy Young Award. I know it's a little bit early to be talking about that. However, there's there's not really that much season, so right. you could definitely see it. Bauer's also entering his contract year. You have to think that that might have pushed him to work a little bit harder. But besides the point, Bauer looked excellent. 12 Ks in six innings. Of course, two-thirds of the outs being strikeouts there was extremely impressive. Nick Castellanos hit another home run. He has seven on the year. His his OPS after that game was at 1251. He had a couple not as good games after that, but he's still been one of the best hitters in the National League. So the Reds were ultimately able to, to pounce on the Brewers with all those six runs that they scored off Lauer coming in the same inning. Yeah, and Christian Yelich, uh, who's been struggling this year with his third home run of the year, uh, a two-run shot for the Brewers. So a, a, a small bright spot there for the Brewers, but otherwise their offense very limited. Like I said, Bauer giving up just three hits. Uh, and then um, the combination of Reed, Strope, and Sims for the Reds going three innings and giving up just two hits as well. Yeah, Sims' slider looked really good in that game. And Pitching Ninja on Twitter tweeted a, a video of Lucas Sims. And and one fan said, if only he could have done that with the Braves, since he was a first-round pick of the Braves, a pretty good prospect. And then they gave him opportunities, but he didn't, didn't really survive or didn't thrive in Atlanta. Lucas Sims then responded to the commenter and said, if only the Braves cared about making their pitchers better like the Reds did, wow. which was a pretty big comment, pretty uh, pretty harsh comment to make about the Braves organization. But 
Good thing he's not in the NBA. He'd be sitting on a hundred thousand dollar fine probably for that comment. Yeah, yeah, probably. Referencing, but... sorry, for referencing the uh, Draymond Green fine after mentioning Booker needing to get out of the Suns, but that's my random NBA reference for the day, uh, in case you weren't up on that one. But anyways, yeah, that's definitely a harsh, harsh towards the Braves. Probably some hard feelings. Not yeah. felt like he didn't get the opportunity that that perhaps he deserved. Uh, but yeah, Slider did look good uh, for Sims in that game, and the Reds again. The Reds taking Game One, eight to three in Milwaukee in Game One. Game two, we saw a matchup of Anthony DiSclefani and Brett Anderson, with the Reds taking game two as well uh, in a four to one game. Your thoughts on this game? Yeah, Anderson really, he allowed the three run shot. That was the killer coming after the Hira error. Now, it may have ended the inning, it may not have. It was a, a ground ball to Hira's left side, and he failed to field it. It would, would have been a borderline double play. If it would have been a double play, it would have gotten them out of the inning. Then. Here, uh, then Anderson left a breaking ball out over the plate and Suarez hit a home run. Or as, as Jerry Augustine said, Eugenio Suarez put a good swing on the ball, hit the ball out the ballpark. He got the ball elevated and, yeah. and just put a good swing on the ball. Yeah, yeah. But anyways, so Anderson, those were where the three runs came from. Two of them being earned since they, errors don't account for what might have been a double play. Right, right. So that doesn't quite show the full story, whether or not that would have been a double play. Who knows? But really the notable pitcher for the Brewers that day was not Brett Anderson, rather Corbin Burns, who came in relief for Anderson in, in sort of a piggyback role, going five and a third out of the bullpen, giving up just one hit and one run, looking very solid out of the pen. Yeah, Burns looked excellent that game, and Burns seems like a guy who would be better in the rotation, especially with the way he's been pitching. A guy, maybe he's not going to go seven, eight, eight innings right now like Woodruff could, but I, I do think he'd be a solid starter, better option than Anderson. And I'm really a little bit surprised looking back that the Brewers decided to give Anderson a, a guaranteed contract. Not necessarily saying that because of because of some uh, some hindsight twenty being right. 2020, which, yeah, of course, it's easy to say it now. But also just realizing that, that Anderson really last year was a guy who would go four or five runs and get ground balls. Four or five innings. Excuse me, so, yeah, yeah, four or five innings and get get some ground balls, but right. there there wasn't really a lot of upside there. There's not necessarily a guy in there who could be a really a lockdown starter. The thing with Anderson, too, is that at this point in his career, he's more of a depth guy, and it doesn't play to his strength given that he tends to get hurt just about every year. Right, and, and also he's not a guy who will eat innings. He just kind of is there takes the ball every fifth day when he's healthy, which is, is a big if. He started on the injured list this year. Yeah. And so it seems like it would have made more sense if they wouldn't have signed him, maybe gone after another guy who they could have gotten on a minor league deal as some depth and then possibly had Burns enter the year in the rotation and had him stay there, unlike what did end up transpiring. Any specific guys you would have seen the Brewers sign rather than Anderson this well, season? Well, a guy that went for the same amount as Anderson was Alex Wood, who I, I believe to be a, a considerably better pitcher than Anderson. I don't know if Wood would have signed with the Brewers for one year, $5 million. That's what he got from the Dodgers, which was his former team. So there definitely could be something there, although the, the Dodgers do have a better pitching staff, so less guaranteed innings there. And also taxes in California are much higher. <laughs> So I don't know if he factors that in. Yeah, I don't know if he factors <laughs> that in, but that's that's a pretty good amount that that he'll be losing run, to taxes yeah, in, in tax California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But but it would be interesting to see what the Brewers' thoughts were on on choosing to sign Anderson. Of course, we don't know the backstory behind it. Maybe Wood was 100% into going back to LA. We don't know that. But it sure seems like the Brewers, if they had the chance to get Wood for five, six, seven million, 
may have been a better uh, signing than Anderson. Again, we're, we're still early in the season, and we'll see what Anderson's able to do, but not too optimistic on Anderson uh, being a, a key contributor this year for the Brewers. And I mentioned the, the Reds uh, putting up four runs in this game, only on five hits, so not a ton of offense this game. Uh, you mentioned Anderson giving up the three-run shot, uh, but Brewers limited the, the Reds to just five hits. A lot of that was Corbin Burns coming in and, again, throwing five and a third out of the pen, looking very good. Uh, Reds turning to Iglesias for another save to lock it down at the end of the game. But, again, Brewers falling in game two. Anything else to add to, on game two? No, not specifically, but a little bit disappointing also because after that game two loss, they fell into third place. The Reds ended up moving into second. Of course, it doesn't really matter a whole lot, but just something to note that then the Brewers ended up overtaking them in back again in game three, which we were going to discuss already. 9-3 route of the Reds yesterday, and that being a game uh, matchup of uh, Sonny Gray going for the Reds with Brandon Woodruff starting for the Brewers. Woodruff, another strong start. Uh, only going four innings this time, uh, high pitch count up in the 90s already after four. So not necessarily, uh, probably is, I guess, his worst start of the year. But four innings, two runs, nothing too much to complain about, especially with the Brewers' flexibility in the bullpen, uh, able to put Suter in and have him toss two scoreless innings. Then going to Williams, Knable, and Claudio, who all went in innings to close out the game for the Brewers. Yeah, and Claudio came in in a 9-2 game, did not pitch well. Hater actually had to start loosening up in case something were to happen. So there was a, a tweet I saw by a Brewer fan who said that Alex Claudio needing to have Hater warm up for him in a 9-2 game should be a, a DFA-able offense. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I'd go there. Yeah. But but Claudio has not been great. I, see, Claudio is a guy who was really effective with the Rangers. And he was okay with the Brewers last year, kind of their their innings eater out of the bullpen. He led the National League in appearances, but he also was a guy that's not very fun to watch. <laughs> of course, that's, if, if he's watching, a, yeah, if he's a, well, true. <laughs> but if he's effective, it doesn't really matter. But he he hasn't been extremely effective. Seems like a guy. Seems like more of a depth guy at this point. But they aren't paying him too much. Yeah, do you see Claudio sticking with the roster the rest of the year? Um, I, I definitely think so, unless he really blows up and pitches extremely poorly going forward. I don't necessarily see that happening, though. I think he'll just kind of settle into that okay relief arm. I don't know if they'll bring him back for another year. And the three-batter minimum rule is also something that comes into into play with Claudio being a lefty that does not fare well against right-handers. Yeah, I know when the Brewers sent down uh, J.P. Fireisen to the, uh, what is that called, Appleton, to their Appleton site, I did see some Brewers fans... Uh, tweeting for Yelich. Brewers to yeah yeah well that was true the Brewers, some Brewers fans were tweeting to send down Yelich uh, I hope that uh, those were in all uh, in all all in joking but regardless I did see some requests for the Brewers to send down either Justin Grimm or Claudio uh, or a different bullpen arm rather than Fire Eisen. did you feel that they made the the, the right move I mean it, it was obviously just a few games in yeah it, it could have been any of the the arms that they have there I thought it made some sense Fire Eisen, only through one outing, but at least he was able to make his big league debut for the Brewers. And so, overall, I wasn't, I wasn't necessarily dissatisfied or or displeased. There wasn't a guy that I really thought that they should option down. And just to finish up some of some of the things that went on in that game, yeah, and Sonny Gray didn't look particularly good, but it was really Michael Lorenzen who kind of sealed it for the Brewers. He 
came in with a couple runners on base, inherited some in the sixth, and then ended up walking in a couple runs. He allowed all of the inherited runners from Sonny Gray, both of them, both of the runners to score. And then he allowed three more of his own. And so Lorenzen with uh, not a great, not a great outing there. Zero innings pitched, one hit, three walks, four runs. Cody Reed came in in relief for Lorenzen and allowed a couple of inherited runners to score of Lorenzen's, but Lorenzen not having a good outing. Gray not great either, but it was Lorenzen that really sealed the Brewers. The Brewers did have a Menards big inning, six <laughs> runs. So hopefully they still have that that uh, that that promotion still going on. I, I think they do because it's it's a radio promotion that Bob Euchre always talks about the Menards big inning. I, I think it's, if we mention it here, maybe Menards will pay us too for the, maybe for the, yeah, for the ad. There. Yeah, yeah, maybe. But anyways, Menards big inning. Able to uh, then get the Badger Mutual insurance runs in the seventh <laughs> inning, scored a pair of runs to make it nine two before we just our ultimately. Sponsors. Yeah, now we just now we're making a lot of money on this one. Yeah, before ultimately winning nine nine to three. Yeah, and good to see the Brewers' offense uh, with ten hits, three hit day coming from Keston Hira and Justin Smoke and Yelich as well going two for three. So good to see Yelich and Hira having good days, uh, both not starting the season exceptionally well. Uh, Yelich has obviously been in the in the spotlight both uh, for Brewers fans and I think baseball has been watching it a little, little mm -hmm. bit. Yeah, and Yelich is is uh, OPS is up to 754, which I did not realize. So he's only hitting 154 still, which is not good. But 754 is actually above average, and so he's been playing a little bit as a little bit better as of late. His slugging is uh, is getting there, 468. And he's been walking a lot. And so th those are the things that have been a more positive for Yelich overall. He did have that home run that almost hit the scoreboard. Somehow only measured at 410 feet. Whereas Hira's, that was a wall scraper, went went uh, 412 yeah. feet supposedly. Yeah. I don't know how that is. but That, that, that Yelich home run reminded me of Prince Fielder's home run on the scoreboard. I have no clue what yeah. that one was. That was that much gotta be Yeah. yeah. That was, I think that came yeah. in maybe 440, 450, yeah. somewhere in there. Yeah. But I do remember that one on the scoreboard back yeah. in the day when we had the old scoreboard. Yeah, and in addition to Yelich's home run was was Keston's home run there, and it was a, a wall scraper in center. It made me think of the old baseball term Chinese home run, which of course Keston here is half Chinese. I don't I don't mean this in any sort of derogatory way. It was just what I thought of because and people don't say that anymore. No, nobody says, "Oh, that was a Chinese home run," uh, but it was was used. And so I was looking up the or origins of the Chinese home run on the extensive Wikipedia page. There is on an obscure baseball baseball terminology. There, what the what the term started with was, I guess, after the Chinese Exclusion Act in the late 1800s. Some Chinese would end up coming, but usually if Chinese immigrants ended up coming to the United States, they would end up working cheap labor jobs. And so they were kind of like everything about Chinese people was cheap. So whether it be the quality of their, their clothing because they didn't have that much money, the labor that they would do was, was cheaper. I guess people called Ford the Chinese Rolls Royce. And so when you would hit a home run just barely over the fence, they would call it like a, a cheap shot kind of like we still would today. And so they they said because it was cheap, they called it a, a Chinese home run. And one of the guys who actually popularized this I, apparently was Mel Ott, who was a, a very good player back in his day. And he, he maybe used it a little bit, but also was a guy who hit over 500 home runs, but hit a lot of home runs just barely over the fence that were at the polo grounds, of course. 
uh, being the the one park, not not the one park, but the park with the most extreme dimensions. And so, so he was able to benefit a lot from the Chinese home run, I guess. Yeah, looking at the, like you said, extensive Wikipedia page, feel free to take a half an hour and go through this. But looking at some of the more recent usage of it, uh, Oakland A's announcers in the uh, 80s, Bill King, I should say announcer, Bill King uh, used the term and received some backlash from reporters. And, and then even in 2015, you would think that people mm -hmm. would know better in 2015, but two Royals announcers referenced a, a long fly ball as a Chinese home run and again, caught some flack and we're told that they needed mm -hmm. to stop saying that for obvious reasons, I understand that. But mm -hmm. anyways, uh, off on, the, uh, on the, the tangent there, but there's an old baseball term that you probably will never hear, but in case you do, you uh, will be well versed in your baseball vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so anyways, Keston here uh, hit a home run in addition to <laughs> Yelich's home run. Somehow they said Hira's went farther. Not sure how that's possible. Yelich's home run was on like the advertisement area yeah. under the scoreboard. Hira's barely snuck out of the park. And so technically Hira's went farther based on the distances. I don't know how. But anyways, Hira's barely went over. Yelich hit a home run. And both of them, their OPSs are up, up to above average now. And they're the two, really the two best hitters in the lineup. So it's good to see them going now. Yeah. No way that the Brewers succeed without those two bats. No, not, two a, biggest bats, not a chance. Middle of the lineup. And they're going to be their middle of the lineup regardless yeah. for a long time. Uh, the LH would be there the whole year, I'm sure. Um, yeah. But I, I do think they're going to they, – they'll, they'll be fine. They're going to regress to the mean. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we actually failed to mention Yelich's inside the park home run uh, against right. the White that's Sox true. series. That's which true. Is kind of a fun, a fun yeah. way to see. Yeah. Uh, interesting with the ball careening off of the – uh, net in left field. I believe it was Eloy Jimenez. Mm -hmm. Could be wrong. Fell on that into one, the but net. Yeah, Jimenez like yeah. fell into the net, and then the ball hit the net. Yeah, uh, which I actually wasn't even sure if the ball was still in play off of that. Yeah, but I, I did see that the official rules that that is correct that the ball was supposed to be still in play because it bounced right back in, and Yelich, uh, Yelich even didn't even run out of the box. He was kind of just like jogging all the way past first base when I was watching the the highlight of it. And pretty much just turned the Jets on halfway to second and still was able to get an inside the park home run. A fun moment to see for Yelich. Yeah, and just a couple quick uh, quick notes that the of the Brewers' transactions over the previous week. Alec Bettinger was added to their, their alternate training site roster. He's a guy who is kind of some depth as a starter or more, more likely as a reliever. And so he probably won't debut with the Brewers this year. There's an outside chance, though, if they have a number of injuries or opt-outs or if, if COVID hits the Brewers, which would, of course, be unfortunate. But, it, I mean, it's certainly possible. The Cardinals have only played five games. And JP Fireisen, like we mentioned before, and Ryan Healy were both optioned to the alternate training site. The roster is shrank to 28. And so one of the things that they agreed with in this shortened season is that the rosters would start out at 30 for two weeks and then go to 28 and then 26 two weeks later. That has been altered. And so the rosters will remain at 28 for the rest of the year, including the postseason, I believe. And so Healy and Fireisen were optioned, but we won't see any more, any more rounds of, of Two, forced. Yeah, forced roster cuts there. Also, back in the day, like in the 70s, 80s, and maybe prior to that, rosters would actually start out at about 30, 29, 30 players on opening day, and then they would cut down. I think within three weeks, they'd be down to 25. And so that's something that we haven't seen in a while, but it was kind of resurrected this year. 
Is that something that you see potentially? Maybe no, there's an maybe outside, 30, but... yeah, an outside chance. The the one thing that I could see happening is if the players association decides that they don't want as long of a spring training, which I think is possible because spring training keeps getting pushed further into more of the the middle to beginning right. of February. And then instead of that, then the pitchers aren't able to be fully built up. And so then maybe they would do that. Maybe they would have a a small expanded roster for the first two weeks of the season before they're fully built up as they're still pitching only maybe 70, 80 pitches. And so I think pitchers prepare better now than they really ever have. So I don't think that's something to be overly concerned about with that. But yeah, it could be a a, a roster rule that we could see coming into into play in a couple of years. So yeah, just some minor transactional moves that the Brewers made over the past week. And we briefly touched on this, but updated standings here for the NL Central. Cubs still in first place, standing at 10-3, and three, up four games to the second place Brewers, 6-7. Uh, and seven. The Reds in third place at 7-9, and nine, with the Cardinals and Pirates rounding out the NL Central. And you did mention the Cardinals only have been, but having, excuse me, only having played five games this year with... Uh, the, I, I forget which team it was has already played 17 games so big discrepancy there for the Cardinals haven't seen a lot of them we'll see how the uh, positive tests affect their depth affect their lineup affect their performance not really sure what we're going to see of, of course this is uncharted territory yeah certainly is the Cardinals aren't going to be playing till at least this weekend and so that that's definitely going to set them really far behind. They've only played five games. They're really two weeks behind some other teams, so it'll be interesting to see if they are able to make it up. They might not be, though. Yeah, I don't mean to, to be redundant. I know you touched on this on the last episode a little bit as far as how they're going to, to make them up, but it will be interesting to see if they're able to pull off some consecutive double headers, or regardless of how they do it, it's going to be a disadvantage to the Cardinals and to the Marlins and to other teams going forward if this does become an issue that other teams face. Yeah, I know how the schedule is right now. The Marlins are scheduled to play 14 games in 10 days next month, and so that's something that's not very conducive. But the Marlins are playing well right now. They're 7-3 and three as we speak. They have kind of a unique roster. They have a lot of guys that are replacements. Some guys aren't still recovered fully from COVID. Their second baseman actually was the uh, runner-up, the silver medal recipient for speed skating at the 2014 Sochi Olympics. And so... Kind of a, a unique two-sport athlete. Not usually a combination. You see baseball and speed skating. Normally you might see baseball and basketball, baseball and football. But baseball and speed skating. And so he that, he's kind of one, one member of an, an intriguing Marlins roster that's actually sitting in, in near the top of the division, first, second area with the Braves there. Yeah, and it seems like the Marlins do have a fair amount of former Brewers or Meyer Lakers. A fair, yeah, a lot. Gary yeah. Cooper, Lewis Brinson, yeah. Diaz, uh, ya- uh, Yamamoto, Yamamoto, yeah, Aguilar, right. VR, right. yeah, Kinsler, yeah. Mike Morin, they claimed off waivers from the Brewers. Monte Harrison is another guy. Caleb Smith was a Rule 5 pick of the Brewers. Did I hear that they signed Jeff Cirillo, too? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, they have 10 members of uh, former members of the Brewers that are on either their active roster, their injured list, or they're at their alternate site. So yeah, a lot of a lot of former Brewers on that Marlins squad. Still waiting for the Colin Walsh signing from the Marlins. Yes. What are what what where is Colin Walsh? Let's check on Colin Walsh. Oh, he's a free agent. Oh, he was in the American Association for the Kansas City T-Bones a little bit last year, but yeah, I, uh, maybe I guess he 
probably a unlikely at this point to yeah. see a, a resurrection of the career at age 30, but did have a 317 on base percentage for the Brewers he did. in 2016. He did, so with his 085 average. We were just focusing on the on base Yeah, the on base percentage, yeah. <laughs> but can he get on base? Yes, yes. I wonder if there are any, like, what's the lowest Hall of Fame on base percentage? That'd be that'd probably take too long to look up right now. Probably, but yeah, it could be better. Could be lower than yeah. It could be lower than three seventeen. It it's possible for uh, Bill Mazeroski. Actually, I think you're right. <laughs> I think he had a two ninety nine career on base percentage. Let's that let's was just check. a shooting from the hip. Two, uh, I don't think see. that I would. I, I didn't think. I think. I think. Land yeah, I know that. he had two sixty, and on base percentage two ninety nine. There, there we, we go. go. Both of us have. So that. Colin Walsh better than Bill Mazeroski. Put Possibly. Colin Walsh. In the Hall of Fame, I don't care if he didn't have 10 years under his belt at the Major League <laughs> level. Close enough, Colin Walsh should be a Hall or of Famer. Or at least if we could combine the two. If you, I mean, this is probably something that people hear commonly, but I mean, if you could just combine Bill Mazeroski's skills with Colin Walsh's skill, yeah. first ballot Hall of Famer. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Also, uh, the pictures that he has on Baseball Reference, he has so much tobacco in his in his <laughs> mouth. Like the like Raul Ibanez. Yeah, 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 that's true. Ibanez is like the most recent player to yeah have that yeah the huge protruding yeah cheek yes <laughs> anyways i don't know how we got on that yeah but anyways moving on from protruding, yes, from protruding cheek so so thank you guys again for tuning in to episode 10 before we head out uh let's do a quick baseball's best segment i'm gonna switch it up a little bit uh this time and we're gonna do uh instead of just one baseball's best let's do baseball's top three so baseball's top three catchers uh, right now so this would be let's just say Top three catchers right now, um, and we won't go like, I, I don't want to get too technical here, but for this year. So let's not say, well, I want this guy because he's under mm-hmm. more control. Mm-hmm. We won't get too technical. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that, that's certainly uh, different than than we have uh, have talked about before. But JT Realmuto definitely is one of those three. He's there with the Phillies. Great defensive player and pretty good offensive performer. Actually, an interesting story that I was reading about Realmuto, but he he played his uh, high school ball in Oklahoma, and when the Marlins brass went to scout him, one of the area scouts was scouting a different player who threw very hard on the mound. Ended up, I think, being drafted in the first or second round of that year. But Realmuto, who was their shortstop, was the only guy who could actually catch him because he had very good hands and was just a very good, a tremendous athlete. And so guys weren't really weren't really in on him. Scouts and, and organizations weren't really in on Realmuto. But then the Marlins, they loved him so much. He was at the top of their board. They tried so hard to like wait to, to, to take him because they didn't think other teams would. But they knew there was a chance they weren't going to get him. And so they took him in the third round. Everybody was around the industry was saying, like, why would you take this guy? Stupid pick. Ultimately ended up turning out pretty well for the Marlins, I'd say. He was actually drafted the same year as Yelich. And so pretty good draft there for the Marlins. But anyways, I would go with Realmuto for the first one. Second one, Yasmani Grindal. We saw a lot of him last year as he was a member of the Brewers. But uh, excellent, excellent pitch framer and hitter. Takes a lot of walks and, and hits for some power. Actually, if I could add, yeah, the, you mentioned the pitch framing. In the games I've seen Narvaez behind the dish, it does make you miss Grandal, something that you took for granted. I, I don't know if Narvaez, I know he struggles defensively or is known to struggle defensively, but... Definitely does not look the same as Grandal behind the plate. Even just in receiving pitches, it's evident that Grandal 
is definitely better than him. Yeah, and we've been spoiled over the last, really, the last 10 years, yeah. dating back to Luke Roy, or even before that with Kendall. Kendall yeah. Yeah, uh, say for the short Greg Zahn stint yes. in, in early 2010. Let's not get on the Zahn stint. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, but Luke Roy for a while, Maldonado, Pina, and Grindal. So Narvaez is really a big step down after a number of those guys. But I'd go with Grindal as one of the top three. And then the third one is a little bit of a surprise. Mitch Garver, I would say, from Minnesota. He's a little bit off to a slow start right now, but he slugged 630 last year. Did not start the, for the entire season with Minnesota, but he did start a, a good chunk of the games, and he, he altered his approach. He was asked about what he was doing differently offensively, and he said, I like home runs. I decided I wanted to try to hit home runs because home runs are cool, and then he started hitting well. So, of course, not necessarily that simple, but Mitch Garver ended up hitting really well. I do think it's sustainable because of some of the under underlining statistics underlying numbers like like his uh, average exit velocity his strikeout rates were not exceptionally high nor were his his walk rates were pretty good and uh, so I think it's sustainable Mitch Garber will turn it around so I would say those are the top three catchers in baseball so top three catchers for the year I'm gonna put you on the spot again I know I already put you on the spot for this one but of those three catchers or I guess any catcher but I'm assuming it's gonna be one of those three who would you rather you know start a franchise around or have for the rest of their career? Would that be Real Muto, Grandal, uh, or Garver, who I believe Garver is the youngest of three. I know mm -hmm. he's the least experienced, at least. Mm -hmm. I would I would choose Real Muto. Even though Garver is younger, Real Muto does come with a, a more proven track record. And so I think that, that would be a big reason why I would choose Real Muto. And he's got a very athletic body. And so I do think that he'll be able to continue to play into his 30s. Yeah, so there we go. So JT Real Muto, Yasmani Grandal, and Mitch Garver, David's top three catchers, leaving out uh, Gary Sanchez and Wilson Contreras, maybe those other other top guys. Uh, Sanchez, obviously, with the Yankees, so whatever that bias uh, adds for Sanchez. But So Brewers coming up, they face Minnesota Twins at home in a three-game set against their Minnesota rivals, and then head over to Chicago for a four-game set at Chicago. Could be a, a relatively big series for the Brewers. I know it's still early in the season, but... With the Cubs off to a strong start, it could be a series where either the Cubs pull away even farther or the Brewers catch up some ground and, and keep things a little bit tighter in the NL Central. But again, that's all we have for today. Thanks a lot for listening. Uh, look out for episode 11. That'll be coming out uh, in about a week covering the Twins and uh, some of the Cubs, or I should say the Twins and Cubs series. And uh, check out our website over at Bleeding Blue and Yellow wordpress.blog wordpress.com okay, yeah sorry. reading blue and yellow.wordpress.com and i do have an article up there of some early takeaways from the year uh mostly with the, the pitchers and and some of the things that we can actually take away not not numbers like yelich's 149 batting average that wouldn't be really something that you could meaningfully take away but a, a number like uh like burns having some uh, some extra fastball velocity on the year, for example. So some things that are more sustainable, those are in the article. Be sure to check that out. Yeah, definitely give that a read, um, whether you're uh, you know more of an in-depth fan, sabermetrics. But even if you're a beginner fan, it's a good way to, to learn maybe some of those underlying stats and how they can uh, apply to performance going forward. So again, that's all we have today. This is David Go and Peter Go signing off for today. Go Brewers! Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast. We'd appreciate if you subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. 
Make sure to check out our blog at bleedingblueandyellow.wordpress.com and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Brewers Podcast.